Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of For What It's Worth podcast. Uh, once again, I don't know what the episode number is. Could be 24, could be 25. Doesn't really matter. Um, first of all, if you're going to smoke, smoke Marlboro Reds, right? Quit dicking around with the ultralights and just go straight to the tar. I mean, from what I understand, unless you rip the filter off, there is nothing better than a Marlboro Red. So I don't smoke, and if you do, you're going to probably die a horrible death anyway. So what's the point in prolonging that? Just get it over with and go straight to the Marlboro Reds. On that note, uh, I want to propose a, an idea for this upcoming summer before we get to our hero of the week, and in this case, it's two, uh, and, our, and our points. I've got a lot of stuff to talk about, but I'm going to propose something called the Summer of Regret, followed by a winter blizzard of bad decisions, and here's my plan. This is for you and I and all your friends and all your families to go back and reenact for real all of the terrible decisions that we made from the ages of 18 to 30. Um, so let's say that you got drunk and ended up on stage at a concert in Corpus Christi, hypothetically. Or let's say that you got arrested in what in East Texas for doing something you didn't do, um, hypothetically. Or maybe you ran from a crazy homeowner who was trying to shoot you because you may or may not have done something to his personal property. I don't know. Whatever your bad decisions were, I think it's time that we reenact because we've become way too safe and structured and boring and talking about 401ks and retirement. And um, we're forgetting to live the part in the middle. The 40 most productive years of our lives, uh, we're donating. Okay, moving on. Our hero of the week is actually two. Uh, the first one is a musician named Tyler Childers, who is a uh, guitar player, singer, songwriter from somewhere in the coal country part of the country. I don't know where he is. And the reason he's a hero is because I have decided that my first guitar song that I will learn from front to back is a Tyler Childers song. So I'm sorry, Tyler Childers, um, for doing that to you, because I will butcher this song in a way that probably no one else in the world has. Now, being me and my schedule, uh, we're probably looking at midsummer before I even come close to being able to master this, unless we get quarantined. And then I might have the actual time to do this, but we don't know. Um, the virus is not looking good, and um, I really don't have any faith that we can stop it from spreading here in the U.S., but we'll see. Okay, second hero of the week is photographer Dwayne Michaels. And if you don't know Dwayne Michaels, I don't know where you've been. And the reason I'm bringing up Dwayne is I got an email this morning. Um, ever since I started making YouTube films, I've just been deluged by contact from people all over the world um, asking me to look at work, look review their work, do portfolio reviews, do consulting, uh, you know, look, listen to their ideas. And then other people just write and say, look, I find what you're doing inspiring and, and this is what I'm doing and what do you think? And so I respond to everyone. I mean, the, the point is if you're going to be on these channels, um, it drives me insane to see people who have massive followings who do not respond to their followings at all and they very casually throw that away by saying, well, I'm just too busy. That's not cool. If you're on Instagram and you have 10,000 followers and you follow eight people, you're an asshole. Let's just get it up front, right out in front. Um, it doesn't matter who you are. If that's your mentality, I think you're an asshole. So I try to respond to people. And um, this guy wrote and was talking about something that he was doing. And he wanted to combine. One of the films I made was about combining media, like writing and doing poetry and recording sound and all these different things and not just photography. And he said that he was very keen on that. And if you don't know about Dwayne Michaels, Dwayne is probably in his 80s now, maybe getting up to 90. He is a completely unique individual in the history of photography. Um, he's, a, he's a total character and a blast to hang out with. 
Um, I've seen him do things at talks that were the most irreverent, unbelievable things that he got away with because he's Dwayne Michaels. But he's he's really funny, amazing sense of humor. But look up his work, and it's M-I-C-H-A-L-S. And um, he does not have a website as far as I know, but he's represented by a bunch of different galleries, and you can find his work. But it combines his handwriting and photographs often. And his work is very conceptual. And his handwriting is absolutely incredible. If I had handwriting like that, I would never leave the house because I would just be writing all day long. My handwriting looks like a language that hasn't been invented yet. So I'm a bit behind the eight ball on that. Okay, those are our heroes of the week. I hope you um, I hope you uh, find those useful. And the other thing I'm going to throw out here, just because we seem to be reaching sort of a, a, a crux of our societal uh, weirdness at the moment, um, Two days ago, my wife and I ran into someone, my wife's Jewish, and we ran into someone who dropped literally the single most anti-Semitic comment I've heard in my entire life to my wife and said it as if he was saying hello. It dropped so easily. And we just looked at each other and my wife said, hey, do not say that ever again. And the guy tried to backpedal. And he kind of acted as if he, he knew exactly what he said, because when she confronted him, he admitted he knew that that was anti-Semitic, but he said it anyway. And this was in a public space. I mean, I was so taken aback by, by it happening. Literally, it had never happened in my entire life. And I called an, or texted another friend who's Jewish, and he was like, man, you should call the Better Business Bureau. You should do X, Y, and Z. I didn't do that. Um, I don't, you know, think. I think we're at a point now where people are so radicalized in their beliefs that they, there's just the Better Business Bureau is not going to do anything. Um, and so this hero of the week goes to anyone who stands up to this, to lies, hate, injustice, et cetera. If you're out there, if you're an investigative journalist, if you are a high school kid, if you are a young person who is doing something to sort of combat the stuff that's being becoming more and more common, and and it's always been in in the states. I mean, we are absolutely a, um, you know, uh, we have all kinds of internal strife and issues in this country. We always have going all the way back to the colonies. I don't think there's any way, if you know history, there's no way to deny that. But over the last three and a half years, it has literally been sort of given a permission slip to become part of the vernacular of everyday life. And that's a first for me. So anybody out there who's fighting hate, more power to you, baby. Okay, moving on. Um, Bloomberg, um, I want to hit a little bit on politics here. I can't. I don't really watch the debates. I have my views on the Democrats, who I think not only who who could win, but also who can beat you know the um, the doofus. And Bloomberg buying his way in as a as a uh, billionaire, and everybody's up in arms about this guy being able to buy his way into politics. And I just think that's really funny, because um, first of all, if I was going to let a billionaire buy his way into American politics, my choice right off the bat would be Richard Branson. I would not take Bloomberg or Doofus or anybody American that has billions. If you know anything about Richard Branson, and I'm not saying Richard Branson is perfect by any stretch. I'm sure he's got skeletons like we all do. But holy cow, I mean, this guy is a, he's a transcendent being compared to all these other billionaires. And why not let Branson run? Let's just get rid of this whole rule. Because look, if half the country or 40% of the country says they'd rather have a Russian run the country than a Democrat, then why not let Russians run? Why not let uh, Argentinians or my personal favorite from the South American region, let's let the Uruguayans run. You know what? Why not? I think they're super cool people. And I'm sure they have a billionaire that's probably way more sensible than any that we have. So I would take Branson over Bloomberg. 
any day of the week. That's the point I want to make. And the second point is our elections have been bought and paid for, for forever. Going all the way back to the colonies, you couldn't be a politician unless you owned land. The whole thing was a scam. So they, all the, the, the handful of, of uber-wealthy guys got together and said, okay, let's, let's rig this from day one. You have to own land to be a politician, and then what's the best land? Okay, kick off the poor whites and drive them west to deal with the Native Americans, and then we'll steal all their land. So we've been doing this forever, and the second that we allowed dark money and corporations to, to pay for elections, it was over. And somehow that gets lost in the fact that Bloomberg just said, look, I got more money than I know what to do with, and I'm going to buy my way in. I have absolutely no problem with that because dark money, which in essence, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bastardize this and dumb it down. You know, I can't as an individual give you unlimited cash for your campaign because it's a bribe, basically. But if I do it through another company or an entity, let's say the Heritage Foundation, which is one of the favorites of the Koch brothers, why not go that way? And then you can give as much money as you want. And it's kind of like a shell game or shell companies where you're once you're two layers in, it's impossible to trace where the money is coming from. But that money's been influencing our elections for decades. So don't get up in arms about Bloomberg buying his way in. If he can defeat Doofus, hey, man, I'll vote for him. I don't care. I'll, it, it, this, for the, at this point, for me, it's anyone but. That's, that's how I'm voting, just in case anyone was wondering. And I don't know why people are so shy about talking about who they're going to vote for. I mean, who gives? Who cares? Like, right? You know, tell me. I'm not going to judge you. If you want to vote for Trump, vote for Trump, whatever. Okay. Moving on. Um, I am about to unveil a level of hypocrisy that I'm not sure any of you will be able to uh, handle. I'm, I'm serious. You're going you're gonna to basically say, this guy is completely full of it. Um, but there's a reason for this. Um, and the short of it is, I'm just going get, get, to come right out and say it. I will be going back on Instagram. Not me as an individual, mind you, but I will be taking over the Blurb Instagram feed uh, periodically in the coming months. Now, as you know, I do not like Instagram. I do not like Facebook. I do not like those companies. I don't like what they stand for. Again, I'm married to a Jewish woman, and that's all you need to know about Facebook and Instagram and the spread of anti-Semitism and the attacks on George Soros and all that. That's, that's a Facebook uh, in great part. I think Facebook is responsible for driving divisions uh, between us as a society and a culture, between religions, between uh, people of different sexual orientation. I think it is a, it's one of the worst things to ever happen to our culture and society globally. I don't know how else to say it, but here's the truth. I work for a company that I worked for for about 11 years. I love it. It's the best job in the world. It changes all the time. It changed again recently in a positive way, which I, maybe I'll share at some point. In, in essence, I'm going to be making a lot more motion pieces, uh, both for Blurb and, um, and sort of for myself and for all other kinds of things. And, and at the heart of that for me is the desire to really learn how to be a filmmaker. I have no uh, no grand dream of being a filmmaker. I just want to be able to do what I see in my head. I need the vision I have in my head to be able to play out on the screen, and right now I cannot do that. So I was up at Blurb offices last week. I had not been there in a long time. It's probably the longest stretch between office visits that I've had in 11 years. Um, I did go to the office, and I was involved in a variety of meetings, as you are when you do those things. It's a very intense, like, two days. Two, two, two and a half days, you come out of there feeling like you've, spent, you've been, been there for 10 days or two weeks. Meeting, 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 lots of notes, lots of tasks, et cetera. And one of the things that I was involved in is the marketing meeting. And so it's a small team, super cool people, very talented, very driven, um, all of them creative in their own way. 
And um, we were talking about strategies for the future, and I was saying I would like to do X, Y, and Z, and they were saying we need X, Y, and Z. And one of the things that came up was, you know, the importance of Instagram for Blurb as a brand, which is, you know, true of I think most brands out there today have some investment in that platform, and they all know how I feel about it. And so I could tell that there was a little bit of trepidation of like, we don't know, we don't want to ask him. And I was like, look, I don't want to be a jerk about this. I understand I am part of a team and my views don't necessarily trump those of the team or, or the company. That's not how it works. And so they said it would be helpful for us if you were to just take over our feed. And I was like, oh, that makes total sense. One, I don't really want to do my own feed. I haven't touched it in over a year. I have no plans of going back. But I understand if it's related to specific events and this is something strategic for you that you are asking of me, then I will do that because I... Um, you know, it's, again, I don't want to put myself over the idea of the team or the company itself. And that could be viewed as being entirely hypocritical. And I get that, but I have to pick my battles. And so I chose my battle, which is I'm not going on my feed. um, And I'm definitely never going on Facebook again. But, um, but this one thing I have to do. And so I just wanted to put it out there, because in case you're on the blurb Instagram feed, which is probably going to be pretty good. So because at some the only places I'm going to use it are events that you should definitely know about. And um, hopefully I'll add a little bit of humor in there as well, because I have a bunch of weird and twisted friends that will be at these events that I'm hoping to, uh, to photograph or film or talk to or whatever. So anyway, okay, I'm moving on. I think we're on to point three or two or whatever. I'm still getting over the pain of my inner child being in an Instagram shame spiral. Okay, moving on. Film photography. Um, for the love of God, hipsters and anyone else out there who's obsessed with film, this is you have to you have to realize you have to put yourself in my position. I'm 51 years old. I started shooting professional assignments, you would say, in the late 80s before I really had any idea what I was doing whatsoever. And let me just give you a little glimpse of what my first newspaper job was like, which was at the Austin Westlake Picayune, all right, which was a neighborhood in Austin. And Austin at the time was a town. That's where I ended up going to college. And I lucked out because Austin wasn't on the radar of New Yorkers and Californians. Nobody was talking about it. It was a small town, great food, great music scene, no traffic, no smog, no Californians, no New Yorkers. And it was a dream. And so I walked in, I heard about this paper called the Westlake Picayune, I think through a friend of my father's who said, hey, there's a little, um, this guy was awesome, by the way, who's an ex-FBI agent who at one point in his career had apprehended one of the FBI's um, top 10 most wanted. He was worked out of the LA bank robbery division, which at the time, I guess, was the office to work out of. And he said, hey, you should go apply at the Westlake Picayune. I think I saw an opening for like a photo something. So I said, okay, and I drove over there and I literally, my portfolio which I had shot with a 500 mirror lens that somebody had loaned me was literally a, I think it was a picture of a deer I shot from my car window. Okay. So what I'm saying is it was potentially the worst portfolio in the history of the world. And the photo editor at the Westlake Picayune never even looked up and acknowledged me. She just said, you're hired. And so I started shooting assignments for the Westlake Picayune. I had no idea what I was doing. And I had to go shoot pictures, come back to the paper, process the black and white film by hand, of course. Then I had to make a darkroom print, dry it. Then I had to put it in what's called a halftone camera, which is the size of the room that you're sitting in right now. And you, it has a vacuum on one side that vacuums the print that you made on it so it's flat. And then the halftone camera is across the room and it, you expose that print on the halftone camera. And then you have to process and print that and then you take it out into another room where there's a whole bunch of humans standing along the walls 
who are doing what's called paste up. And paste up is where you are literally putting the paper together with press on type and line point. And it's the most archaic thing in the history of the world. And, and that's how we did it. And film, no one ever talked about film. It was just the medium that you used at the time, obviously. There was no digital as of yet. Um, and today, I see so many hipsters and so many YouTubers obsessing over the idea that, oh, look, I shot this on film. Or New York City street scenes with film. Guess what, people? That was being done for decades before you came along. It doesn't matter if an image is made digitally or it's made with film or it's made with a combination or it's made with mixed media. It does not matter. The only thing that matters is the content and whether or not it's a good photograph, meaningful, useful, etc. And the meanings of who that is meaningful to or the, or the target audience can vary. It can be just you. I mean, I spoke about this a couple weeks ago where some clown on social media was saying, if your work isn't seen, it doesn't have value. That's just the most arrogant, ridiculous, idiotic statement I've ever heard. 99% of what I shoot, you guys will never see. I don't have any interest or need to share it, okay? It just, it's just not how it works. It doesn't matter why those pictures are made. Are they good? Are they bad? Are they not good? Are they not bad? It doesn't matter if it's film or it's not film. I think we should just get over this. And what's, what's, what happens is the rest of the creative world, the art world in particular, has always looked down on photography and should because of the geekness involved. We get, we get wrapped up in these idiotic discussions about how many megapixels or look at the reviews being done of the Fuji X-T4. They're just the most – I can't watch any of them because it's just awful because the people doing the reviews 99.9% .9 of the time don't know anything about photography. They do camera after camera after camera after camera and nothing looks good. So if you're obsessed about film photography, great. Keep it to yourself. Obsess about what your images are doing. Are they making you happy? Are you learning something? Are you having a great experience in the field? Are the people in your photographs having a good experience, etc.? They don't care if it's film or digital, and we shouldn't either. So let's just move on. All right, next point is about photography to death. I saw this article um, about the Yosemite, certain time of year where one of the waterfalls in Yosemite is backlit, and they call it like a firefall. It's the firefall, right? Oh, it's so exciting. It sounds like a Clint Eastwood movie from the 19... From the 1982, um, for those of you who know what I'm referencing, it's Firefox, which is potentially the greatest movie of all time. Um, okay, so photography to death. People go here to photograph this firefall. And what's happened is there's so many people going now that it's just a, a massive cluster F-U-C beep. Um, and my question is, and this obviously Instagram has destroyed place after place after place. Um, we know that that's a well-worn story now and trash and human waste. And, you know, people just get in that photo and they don't care what they have to do to get it. My question is this, the firefall in Yosemite looks pretty cool, beautiful, natural, natural happening. Yosemite is obviously a beautiful place, but if you have that photograph and I have that and Billy has it, and Mary has it and Timmy has it and, um, Abdul has it, what's the point? of making that picture anymore. Why would you go there knowing that there's going to be 500 other photographers? I remember going to the Grand Tetons back in the early 90s, getting up at like three in the morning, walking out to this remote section. And I come over the crest of this hill and there's like 10 photographers already standing there. I just turned on my heels, went back to my truck and went and found someone where there wasn't anybody there. Why would I want that same photograph? I don't get it. And I think what it speaks to is massive insecurity and also just being a photographer who only does what they've already seen. And that to me is so lame. I think it, there has to be more. 99.9% .9 of your images should fail. 
If they don't, you're not trying hard enough and you're not pushing yourself hard enough. And I don't know how many times I've seen portfolios where people are showing me their images, especially on it. This always tends to occur with an iPad, showing me their images on an iPad and they're showing me their images, but they're telling me about the image they already saw that influenced why they made that picture. And that to me is just bizarre. It's so, so strange. I've never in my life ever done that, showing my work to anyone. And if I did, I'm hoping that one of you would just roundhouse me right in the neck. That's what I would deserve. Okay, moving on. Point number five, um, and I've mentioned this a couple of times before, but something happened again in the last week that I found really interesting. So I stopped working as a photographer in 2010, right? I worked from 1988-ish to 2010. It was a Tuesday afternoon. I said, I don't want to be a photographer anymore, and I deleted my email account on the spot. And I thought, all right, if someone really needs me, they'll find me, and then I'll wait for these whatever trickling connection to the industry I still have will peter out over time, and then I'm going to walk away. I have no interest in being a photographer. When people ask to buy a print, I say no. When people ask to buy a book, I say no. That happened this morning. I said, I'm sorry. I don't really sell any of my stuff. I'm not promoting it. You should check out AG23. I think that'll be more interesting anyway. So last week, I was approached by three organizations who wanted to run features about me. One massive international magazine, a second international documentary magazine, and third was an author who I had met years ago, who's super cool. I loved his first book. He has another book coming out, and he wanted images of mine, potentially, for the cover and for the chapter heads. And I said, look, you know, I'm flattered and I'm, and I'm stoked for you that you got another book. You totally deserve it, but it's not really what I'm doing right now. But hey, here's a list of other photographers that I think would be wonderful for you to look at because potentially their work's going to be even better than mine. And I gave him a list of all the contributors in the first issue of AG23 because they're really diverse. And I know that a lot of these people have archives of work that would work really well for this guy. So I don't have any interest in doing that. And for whatever reason, people are still skeptical. 10 years later, they're skeptical that I want to be a photo- I don't want to be a photographer. I was talking to a guy here in town, a photographer I've known forever, and I said, oh, I screwed up. This was probably six months ago. I said I screwed up. Blurb asked me what I wanted to do. This was, again, six months ago, and I said, uh, I don't really know at the moment, but I'll pitch this idea that I know they're never going to go for, which was me doing a book with a designer, and they said yes. And I was like, ah, crap, I don't want to do a book with the designer. I love the designer, and if I was going to do a book, she would be the one I would want to do the book, uh, one of the designers I would want to work with. But I didn't want to do it. I don't need a book a tr- you know, a book with, uh, of my own work right now. I just don't. And so the photographer said to me, oh, yeah, you do. Yeah, I know you do. Yeah, you really do. Because he does nothing but try to do books. And I was like, no, you don't understand. I do not want this. I have no interest in it. And let me back this up by saying I love photography. I really do. I think about photography every day. I rarely, if ever, get to make pictures anymore because I am so busy with other things, uh, which kind of sucks because I have dreams of doing a project again, not knowing if I'm good enough to actually do a project again. But that's as far as it goes. I want to shoot. I want to make my little publication, and I want to move on and do another project. I don't care about being a photographer or being known as a photographer. And I can tell you right now, I will never care again. It's just a chapter of my life. I had a great time. I moved on and my interests in life are totally different now. So photography is a little piece of the pie, not the entire pie of which it was for 25 years. Okay, moving on. Um, Let's see here. Oh, 
this is something um, that I came to, I came to a painful realization about a week or so ago. When I was a kid, my mom had favorite movies, right? She, my mom's favorite movie character of all time was Darth Vader. She had a black car, which she immediately nicknamed Darth Vader, and that was her favorite thing. She also loved Indiana Jones, probably because she, she had the hots for, for um, you know, what's his name? Um, who didn't? He's dreamy. But she loved Indy, and I did too. That came out when I was a kid. You know, and, and at the time, there was no, like, YouTube. There was no Netflix, obviously. It was hard. If a movie came out and you saw it in the theater, that was it. That was your only thing. You had to go back to the theater over and over again. But what I realized last week or the week before when I rewatched the opening sequence, which is my favorite, right up until he gets in the plane with the snake, that's kind of my favorite thing. I realized he's a thief. He steals antiquities, okay? I mean, let's just get it out in the open He's a thief. They stole the Lost Ark. That kind of puts a damper on the whole thing, right? Okay, there's seven movies or whatever in the sequence, eight, ten, whatever, I don't know. It's about a thief. I just wanted to get that out in the open. Um, my childhood uh, and adulthood will now never be the same. Okay, and moving on, point number seven is what is a professional? And the reason I'm bringing this up is as I was uploading a film on YouTube, a crappy little low production value film that I specialize in, I noticed a photographer who is not a professional giving advice to the masses about what pros think. And this is really bizarre to me um, because most of the pros, quote unquote, pros on YouTube giving advice, I don't think are really pros. I think they're pros in the f online photo space, but they have no connection to the main industry whatsoever. And that is a weird thing. I mean, you could be giving advice to online pros, but don't think you're going to give advice to pros in the industry because they're working in a totally different uh, uh, business. You know, these YouTube pros, I'd be very, very skeptical. First of all, I don't know a legitimate photographer who gives out advice on YouTube. I don't. Not about business of photography. They don't do that. I'm sure there's probably somebody out there that's legit who's doing that, but most of the time people keep that pretty close to the vest. Photographers will discuss that between themselves. They'll discuss it organizationally, whether it's APA or ASMP, et cetera, in those groups. Those are very much about business because it's so difficult to survive now as a photographer that those industries, those entities and, and organizations are really fighting to try to cling to what they have. So I would be very skeptical about taking like business advice from YouTube photographers or online photographers. I think that that's kind of a bad idea, and I just wanted to put it out there. Like I think a professional is you shoot full-time, you make a living wage, and you have health insurance. That's like a baseline. Um, education helps too. You know, this, We now live in the age of I'm self-taught, I'm self-taught, and that mostly means I'm terrified to go to school. In fact, I was standing in the parking lot this morning at 7.55 waiting to get into Trader Joe's, which opened at 8, and it was about 20 degrees, and so I'm standing in the sun in the middle of the parking lot, and I'm listening to my trusty iPad, my Tyler Childers song, and um, not my iPad, my AirPods, and uh, I'm listening, and this ad comes on that says, it's a language ad, and it goes, hey, you know, wouldn't it be great to speak a second language? But who wants to sit in a classroom and learn? Don't you, don't you wish you could just flip a switch? And I was like, oh, if that doesn't sum up our culture right now, that was just like a, a kick right in the cojones to me. I was like, this is the worst possible thing. I've taken from someone who's been in language school, both in the United States and Latin America. It is awesome. I, st I made friends in language school that I'm still friends with. Back from 1995 in Guatemala, multiple friends. Hi, Ted. 
multiple friends that I'm still friends with that I made in language school, the instructors I met, the guy who owned the school, I'm still friends with all these people. It's wonderful to be in a language school. So God, this whole idea of like pro, not pro. I think I'm agitated today, but I'm actually in a really good mood. So try to figure that out. Okay. Like I said, my next point, point number eight is I just came back from San Francisco and I flew from Albuquerque to Oakland. And I love traveling at times, and at other times I'm like, eh. Most of the time when you're doing a business trip, it's not necessarily the most fun, so you have to come up with ways of making it fun. And I love to study my fellow passengers. And Americans in general historically have been really poorly dressed, you know, overweight, poorly dressed, if you had to categorize as a whole. You can spot Europeans a mile away. You can spot Latin Americans a mile away. And I'm not talking about skin color and language. I'm talking about the way that they're dressed. Europeans dress at a level typically that's far beyond what Americans do. And I'm curious about something because I, I would classify most American travelers as positionless passengers, which means the clothing that they're wearing is clothing that you've seen over and over and over again. It's so common and basically based on comfort with nothing based on style that you kind of blend into the masses, right? So when you see someone who's not dressed that way, who's taken the time to go one notch up, I'm not talking about three-piece suit. I'm not talking about anything super expansive. Uh, expensive. I'm talking about stylish. So why, why I bring this up is I, get, I got on this plane in Albuquerque, and I'm looking around, and I'm like, man, everybody looks the same. You know, this is the, the, the Bill Cunningham Streets of New York stuff where he would, you know, New York is great, and Paris is great, and, you know, Hong Kong and places where people take the time to dress up in style. Not everybody dresses up. There's not a need to do this all the time. It's not the end of the world if you don't. I'm just saying. What I find is this. I find that the people who have taken the time to go one step up are far more interesting people. So what I do is when I see somebody that's taken that one step up, I go talk to them. And I find a way to open up the conversation, and I start talking to them. And the last guy that I did this to that really jumped out at me was an older guy. Um, and I was flying out of um, Maine, Portland, Maine, which is an awesome, awesome town, awesome airport. I love Maine, except for the ticks. But this is old-timer in front of me in line, and he's got um, an Australian cattleman hat on, which is if which if you know what it is, it's got a flat brim and the top part of the hat is very short. It's very, because it's super windy. And so, you know, it's a cattleman's hat. And if you, and I grew up part, partly on a ranch and we didn't have hats like that, but I knew the Aussies did. And he's also got really nice pair of like travel pants, but they're fitted. That's the key. They're not those big blocky square things with the zip off legs. They're fitted. And he has a, a cool pair of shoes, nothing over the top. And a cool jacket. And underneath, he has an orange sweater. That's cool. It's not like a, you know, Ross, uh, Ross Dress for Less, whatever, sweater. And believe me, I bought plenty of, like, T-shirts and undies at Ross over the years. I'm not knocking Ross, you know, not at all. But I was like, this guy is put together, right? That looks like an interesting dude. So as we're in the security line, I'm accosting him. I'm, like, starting to talk to him for no reason. And he's looking at me like, are you insane or are you interesting? And I think we came to a mutual agreement. And I was like, I want to know him. I want to know that guy. I want to know his life. I want to know where he's been. I want to know where he's going. And I want to go to his house at some point and maybe have, like, cheese and crackers. Because I could just tell by the way he's dressed. So try this. Try it out. The next time you're in the airport 
And this also will help your photography because engaging with strangers is a huge part of being a photographer in the field, especially if you're doing dock work. So I would give it a shot. That's just my observation is that the people who take a moment to step it up with the dress tend to be a little bit more interesting and worth talking to. Okay, on the same flight, point number nine. So I've used a computer pretty much daily for the last, I don't know, 15 years, let's just say roughly, right? I suck at it. I don't love it. I do it because I have to. I have a lot of friends who love it. They love it more than anything else. They're really good at it. So as I'm sitting on the plane, I'm reading my book, which I can't remember. I read too many books to remember what I was reading at that particular time. And the guy across from me in the aisle, diagonal, so I can see him. He can't see me. He's working on a PC laptop, and he's doing something that's combining the use of about four different uh, software programs. And he is moving in the computer unlike any human being I've ever seen. And I watched him, and I said, oh, my God. I don't even know how my computer works. It was he was so far advanced from me. He was doing something like combine he was creating a 24-hour fitness ad and using Excel and the internet and downloading at the same time. And he was like, bup, 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 bup. first of all, the Windows 10 or whatever it is is so far beyond Mac OS, I can't even I, I don't even want to know about it because what he was doing on that computer is unlike anything I've ever seen anyone do on a Macintosh for sure and on a PC in addition, because I don't look at a lot of people on PCs, but I was like, holy cow. And I just felt like a complete moron for the the next 40 minutes. Like when I kind of thought to myself, if the plane goes down, I'm not bummed about it because I probably deserve it. That was that bad. And that's shocking. So for those of you out there who are that skilled, I hate you. All right. Um, another observation that I made and all the, most of these points this week all came while I'm sitting in the airport or on the plane. That's how my brain works. Um, the point number 10 is newspaper readers. So I noticed something. Most of the people that I know that read newspapers are my age or older, and they will read it cover to cover. And I'm going to give you two two personal examples here. My uncle-in-law, who is awesome, reads two different papers cover to cover every day. He's 82 years old. He is super smart. He's super funny. He's well-versed, well-rounded. He did work in education for his entire life. Um, he's not some super crazy world traveler guy that you know is out going to lectures and stuff all the time, but he just educates himself, and he reads that paper literally every section, cover to cover, every day. I've seen him do it. The other reader is the internet reader. What I find is that the people who are far more interesting to talk to are the newspaper readers. They're far more educated. They have their facts straight, typically, and they can hold a conversation. The internet readers don't seem to know anything. They have all kinds of conspiracy theories, and they can't hold a conversation. And this is across the board. Now, my mother, I'm going to throw her under the bus because I can, and that's what I do. Um, and she deserves it, man. You know, I'm not rich. Well, how come that? How did that happen? I blame her. So I'm going to throw mom under the bus. My mom's 82. She is going through a little bit of trauma at the moment, um, and she doesn't read anymore. She stopped reading probably a decade ago. I don't know why. She was in book clubs forever and then boom, stopped. And I could see a dramatic, dramatic shift in her. So I bought her a book recently, a book that I read a few months ago that coincided with something that happened in my childhood that I thought would relate, she would relate to incredibly well. And so I gave that book to her a few months ago. And every time I talk to her now, I'm like, how's the book? And she's like, oh, I read 20 pages. And then, oh, I can't read it. Oh, uh, something came up. Uh, there's always an excuse as to why that book is not being read. And that is a real problem because reading, and I think this is what the paper does, the, the paper is a workout, right? So you go to the gym, 
you know, maybe you do neck and buys or you do neck and shoulders and you just, you know, you, you, you work on the guns because um, that's what the that's what the ladies dig, right? That's what people dig is the big guns. So you work on your neck, you work, you get the veins bulging, but you forget to work out your brain. And it, I think the, the, the future are, is, is really based on people who can do both. And I think that newspaper is an exercise of the brain that the internet is not. I think the, ex, the, the internet is actually detrimental to your brain. I think there's enough studies about that. I don't have to speculate about it. I think we know that that's true. So if you haven't picked up a paper in a long time, pick one up and read it. And I can almost guarantee you that you will freak out at how difficult it will be to read it. Because your brain is going to be saying, you don't have time. You should do something else. Why not get this online? Why not check your social feed? Why not go to the gym and do neck or calves? Just do neck and calves. Just do the parts of your body that show outside of your ginormous tracksuit and gold chains. That's my, that's my point of view. So I just I think I'm trying to get my mom back on the reading train because I really think it will help her. And something that really solidified this in my mind was my mom got hearing aids recently after needing them for a long, long time. And man, talk about a sham industry. Holy cow. They were like five grand. It's just insane. Um, I, I just feel like that has to be reinvented, that industry. So the guy who, gave, who, who basically tested her and got her the, the earplugs was like, look, you've got to read five minutes every day. And I was like, whoa, where'd that come from? And he said, because when you can't hear, your brain starts to deteriorate, and the reading will f- kickstart it and fire it back up. And so I don't think I'm, I'm out on a limb here when I'm making these observations. Okay, point number 12, I'm going to skip ahead and come back to 11. Point number 12 is about ego. For whatever reason, I lucked out as a photographer. I never got an ego. A lot of the photographers I know, including many who are my friends, have massive egos about being photographers. I've never understood that. I think ego is detrimental. I think confidence is very, very important. Ego is ridiculous because with a, as a photographer, you are not inventing something. You are not starting with a blank canvas. Your subject matter is in front of you. You are dissecting it. It's more of an applied science than an art, in my opinion, and I think you have to keep that in mind. Ego sets the industry back. Ego sets the quality and the impact of photography back. So if you have an ego, go to therapy and try to get rid of it. Okay, I'm going to move on. Just a quick point here about hipsters. Um, one of the things I can't stand about hipsters is they, they don't do their research and they, they don't have original ideas. They co-opt, you know, it's the beards and flannel shirts thing. Like, oh, is that new? No, we were doing that in the 70s. They co-opted. I don't think there will ever be a historically good hipster photographer because they copy, they don't invent. And I really wish that wasn't the case because a lot of the hipsters that I've met internally, it, once you get through the shells of the knit hats and everything – they are super intelligent and they're very talented, but they haven't given themselves the time to figure out what original thoughts are passing through their gray matter. They haven't figured it out. So they, it's easier and faster to copy and then test. Copy, copy, copy. Is it working? Is it working? Is it working? Nope. Copy, copy, copy. Testing. Oh, it works. People like it. Okay, I'm going to keep doing that until it fades and then I'm going to copy somebody else. That's short-term gain. That's a two-year career. That's the cross-processing photographer of the mid-1990s. Fashion guy living in L.A., cross-processing EPR. Look that up for you hipsters out there if you don't know what EPR is. How about EPP, the best crossing cross-film ever made? So let's say that fashion guy in 1995 shooting cross-processing, cross-processed fashion, fashion spreads. Well, guess what? What happened in 97? The fad ended, and every single one of those guys went away permanently, all of them. 
So I kind of think that way that the hipsters are the modern cross-processed folks. Um, and that's not a good way to, uh, to make a career. All right, my last point is a story behind the image. And I think this is my favorite part of these whole podcasts because it gives me a chance to reflect on some of the lunacy that has happened in my life as a photographer. We are going to go back to 1991 or 92. I don't remember the exact date. I was a photojournalism student at the University of Texas in Austin. I was living just off campus in a massive, like, three-story Victorian house. I was living there rent-free, my friends, with my girlfriend. And... Um, we were living in this house, and I had a red Nissan Sentra. Now, at the time, the Nissan Sentra was just a little tin box. And for whatever reason, I don't know how I got that car. It was not my car. I did not buy that car. I somehow had that car um, for unknown uh, reasons or ways. And I loved it. The doors were literally three inches thick. If I got hit, it would have been just, I would have been a crimson stain on the, on the highway. It had a little trunk. It got amazing mileage. It was a little manual transmission. It had no power. Top speed was like 65 miles an hour. Um, I loved it. And I had that car sitting in the driveway waiting for something to happen. Now, as it was, the Branch Davidian standoff was happening in Waco, Texas. And I was a photojournalism student. I was constantly looking for stories. I was trying to string on the side. And for those of you who don't know, stringing means freelancing for whatever, news organizations typically, AP, AFP, Reuters, uh, etc., and this Branch Davidian compound had started, and the standoff had started, and I had made a couple of trips up already. And here's the thing. The Davidian compound, by the time that we were up there, and by, after the, the day of the first shooting when they, you know, the cops tried to take them and, and there was a big shootout, you couldn't get near the compound anymore. The closest you could get was about two miles away. And it was an intersection of two small country roads. Now, that intersection became known eventually as Satellite City because all the media organizations camped out at that intersection with super long lenses shooting across the prairie to try to you know, keep the, the visual of the compound 24 hours a day because you know, the ATF was circling and the FBI and blah, blah, blah. You know, at that point in my life, I'll be 100% perfectly honest. I could have cared less about anyone or anything. All I was after was photographs. I was possessed, and I, I, I ended up being possessed for about 25 years. But I was like, man, I don't care. I want pictures. So I'm there hoping for something terrible to happen, which is what photojournalists do a lot of the time, if we're, all, if we're being honest. And so I'm waiting at this, and I wake up one morning in my luxury third-story um, house— and I turn on the television, and the ATF is now taking APCs, armored personnel carriers, and they're circling the house. And I'm like, holy cow, it is going down. So I call a friend who's a fellow photojournalism student. I don't remember his first name. He's a Vietnamese kid, super nice, good photographer. And I said, dude, we got to go. We got to go. So he comes over, and we get in this just amazing Nissan Sentra. I mean, this thing is a beast. It's probably got 65 horsepower, and we head north on the I-35 to Waco, Texas. And we go up, and this is, of course, pre-computers, pre-cell phones. I have a paper map. I've been there before, but I still got my paper map. And I turn off, and I'm heading down the road towards the compound. And as we get there, we get a couple of miles from Satellite City. There's an ATF roadblock. And so we pull up, and I'm wearing literally a vest, of course, a photojournalism vest because I'm an idiot, and I thought that's what people did. And so, I, you know, it's loaded up with a bunch of stuff I'm never going to use. And I've probably got tape on my, the, you know, taped over the name of my camera and, you know, all the idiotic stuff that we do when we're, when we're idiots. 
And um, I pull up to the ATF roadblock, and it's one car at a time, and you pull up, and there's an agent on both sides, both with machine pistols, probably that HK, I forget what it is, HP5 or MP5 or something. HP5 is a black and white film from Ilford, so it's probably an MP5. And I slowly roll the manual window down, and uh, the guy goes, ID. And now I have a press credential, and I have an ID. Because I'm a pro, I hand him the press credential, and he literally walks up with this machine pistol and puts it to the side of my head. I'm not joking. Puts the barrel to the side of my temple in the car while he's looking at my ID, and he says, nobody, and I mean nobody, could be that ugly, and hands my ID back. And I'm like, oh, that was fun. So we take off, we keep going, and we drive, we park at Satellite City. Now, Bob Damrick was an Austin-based photographer. I think that's his name. I have not spoken to him in 20 or 25 years. Bob Damrick had an old Toyota Land Cruiser that he permanently parked at Satellite City, put it on blocks so that it was level, and built a darkroom in the back of it so that you could process and scan film at Satellite City. Now, I never used it. I never actually saw it. I just heard it was there. And oh, by the way, the journalists who were there were there for so long they created a newsletter, a printed newsletter that would go out at Satellite City for the other fellow journalists as a joke. And they had things like top 10 reasons why you know you've been at Satellite City too long. Number one, your car, your rental car needs an oil change, that kind of stuff. So it was a blast. And uh, I literally, the second I stopped the car, smoke starts emerging from the Davidian compound. And I literally, I have this 500 mirror lens. Again, it's, the, it's a terrible lens, but I have this thing. And I run over to the edge as close as I could get. And there's a row of like sandbags. And I lay down on the sandbags with the 500 millimeter. And I just start hammering this scene. I'm too far away still. I mean, it's, the compound's small. But I, I basically laid on a pile of sandbags with a 500 and watched the Davidian compound explode and burn up. Um, and the final piece of this chapter is... Uh, at the time, the wire services were notorious for taking advantage of people exactly like me. So you'd end up in an event like this. They could not get enough footage. You know, they'd only send one or two people to something like this. And, you know, luck of the draw. And so if you were there and you had a pulse and your pictures were in focus, they'd be like, hey, you should send it to us. And then, you know, we'll, we'll credit you and then we'll pay you. Well, the problem was they rarely credited you and they never paid you. And that's what happened to me. I think I remember giving my film... I think I can see the guy's face to one of the wire services. I never saw the film again. I never got paid. I have no idea if they use the images. I doubt it because they were terrible. I was still too far away. But anyway, that's my Waco, Texas cult standoff story. Um, sadly, I emerged with nothing for my portfolio. And sadly, a lot of people ended up dying in that event, which was awful from every direction that you looked at it, which was pretty sad because... You know, I think there was a lot of people involved there who obviously cults are a, a strange and tragic thing. And I think there were a lot of people in there who probably were not terrible human beings who ended up dying in that compound. So it's sad. And obviously the law enforcement losses as well. Um, just an ugly situation all the way around. But it was one of those events that really taught me, started to begin to teach me about how to handle myself in an event like that. Some of the things to do and not do. The ATF thing with the gun at my head, I, honestly, I, five seconds down the road, I had I'd put it aside. It didn't really bother me. I don't know why it didn't bother me, but um, I didn't really think he was going to shoot me. I think he was just being an ATF. You know, there's. I think there's a lot of guys in those d departments that maybe didn't make the team, and they're trying to make up for it later in life. And um, I didn't hold it against him, and I 
but you know, it didn't bother me. So anyway, that is for what it's worth this week. That was a long one, 47 minutes of pure joy. And um, crying is normal. You might find yourself weeping at the end of this. That's completely fine. And uh, I'll be back next week with another episode. Gracias. Adios.